Amen. Amen. He's, He's all-knowing. He's all-seeing. He's ever-present. He is unmutable. He's unchangeable. He is holy. He is magnificent. He is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and end, faithful and true. I met some faithful people that weren't true. I met some true people that weren't faithful. But our God is faithful and true. Go on a, a, a brief meditation with me. And say these words with me. Say them with me. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know, be still, be. Whisper that with me. Can we whisper? Be still and know. Be still and know that I am God. I love the church. You know, in a time where the loneliness quotient in our nation has doubled over 10 years, and the fact that 46% of millennials say that they have chronic bouts of loneliness, I love the notion of God calling a people to gather around to do his will. I, I love the church. But one thing that I can say at this church that I really can't say at too many others, I love this church. I, I love y'all. And, and, and I, I t Josh asked me to preach a while ago, and I said, oh, I'm good with preaching. My emotions are the problem. You know, I, I'm going to try my best not to uh, cry through this whole thing because as I look at, at Jared and I look at people that I've, I've known for a very long time, it's some members here that I've known for over 20 years in other contexts, and I've known them, and I've walked with them, and I've walked with you all through some wonderful highs and some wonderful lows and, and all that it, that's in between. I love you all, and, and I pray that you all are doing well. Uh, you've changed your hair since I left. <laughs> We're doing good. Um, uh, Canaan and Jordan, you all have seen Canaan and Jordan last Sunday, and I know that you all are amazed at how tall they've gotten. I'm amazed at how good men they are. 
You think you're stunned about how big they are. Wait till you hear them talk and you, you see the leadership that's in these guys. I mean, me and Sharita tried to do our best. We did some parenting, Tim, but they are far beyond our parenting. God has just blessed us with two really remarkable young men. Uh, Sharita is doing good. We got a picture of uh, her celebrating her 50th uh, birthday on the beach there. She, there she is in all her fabulousness. She wanted to be here, but uh, she got called in on some business at, at Pepperdine at the last minute, and so wasn't able to be there. But she's doing good, and she's uh, having a wonderful time teaching a class that she absolutely loves to teach in a context that she loves to teach it in. She can pray with her kids, and, and she can talk about Jesus in her classroom, so she's doing real good. Um, I'm doing great because my boys and Sharita are doing good. I'm doing good, and... Um, my, this, this year has been an extraordinary year of ministry. Matter of fact, the last two years, uh, in a year's time, I started blogging for the Huffington Post religion section. I had a book come out. I got an album with a bunch of uh, insane people from uh, all over the world uh, that just released uh, about two weeks ago. Um, my job at Pepperdine, I exclusively, not exclusively, but 75% of my job is sitting with um, millennials and emerging adults in spiritual direction, coaching, and discipleship. And I love it. Y'all don't have to worry about the future of the church. It's coming. And it's coming boldly. It ain't going to look like you thought it was going to look. Oh, I guarantee you that. But it's going to be amazing for the kingdom of God. It already is. Um, but then the other thing that I do is I get a chance to do research on spirituality and spiritual formation of millennials and emerging adults. And I've been doing this research for the last two years, and the research is conclusive. We're in a spiritual crisis. As a nation and as a people, we're in a spiritual crisis, let me tell you. And when I use crisis, I'm using that in two ways. Crisis as, ooh, but crisis as a time of choosing. We had a previous administration that demands harsh critique. Harsh critique. We got a current administration that demands harsh critique. Because that's what our rabbi and teacher Jesus did. He provided harsh critique to empire and gave a counter-narrative by which to live by, a new story to live into as his people. And so critique is good. It's just the way that we're critiquing things that show our spiritual immaturity. I mean, our language has degenerated in stuff that we wouldn't even allow on a playground, right? You're dumb. No, you're dumb. No, you're stupid. No, you're a liar. No, you're like, no, uh-huh. And the arguments, I mean, it's crazy. Black lives matter. Well, yeah. All lives matter. Well, yeah. Blue lives matter. Yeah. And in that three years of argument, have we ever asked why lives matter? Because the empire is going to give us one answer. And Jesus Christ is going to give us a completely different answer. And that's on a natural. Well, let me challenge you a bit. Can I challenge you and say, never let the empire dictate the terms by which you think about, position yourself, or express yourself about the empire. If you do, you'll never get to the greater good because the empire never has the greater good in mind. 
and, and, and that's just on a national level. Let's talk about the, the spiritual crisis that's in our homes and in our hearts. I, I've been ministering to people around the world in these two years, and the level of brokenness that people are experiencing is profound. It's amazing the amount of pain and anguish and grief, marriages exploding, relationships falling apart, all of these things happening. And what I want to challenge you is never let allow brokenness to dictate the terms by which you think about, position yourself, or express yourself about brokenness. Because if you do, you'll never get to the greater good. Because brokenness doesn't have your greater good in mind. The greater good, engaging injustice. Engaging the violence that is in our world. Engaging for the purpose of peace. Engaging for the reasons that God gathered his people to attack and to transform and to change. That's, that's the greater good. But what do we do? How do we think about? How, how do we position ourselves? How do we express these things? Uh, Einstein once said this, you can never solve the problem with the same consciousness that caused the problem. Paul would say it this way. Paul, the Apostle Paul, one of the earlier followers of Jesus Christ, said, be ye transformed by the renewing of what? Your mind. Jesus comes bursting on the scene, and his inaugural message in his earthly ministry is, Behold, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And that word repent doesn't mean feel shameful. Repent doesn't mean feel bad about yourself. Repentance, it, it, it's a, a compound word in the Greek, metanoia, meta meaning greater or larger, and gnosis is where we get knowing or to know or the mind. And so there is a radical turning. Yes, it's a radical turning because we have a radically different way of thinking. We're thinking from the greater mind, the greater consciousness. For thousands of years, we call this moving to a greater mind, the contemplative stream or the contemplative orientation. Let's look at Ephesians 1. I'm going to get my handkerchief because I'm tripping not to have it. Ephesians 1, uh, 17 through 23 Paul is praying, he says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge, the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people, and his same as the mighty, uh, mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realm, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things, let's say all things, all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness, the fullness, the fullness of him who feels everything in every way. I, I, I might have told you all this story before. I forget all the stories that I've told you all, but I've been to some bad parades. 
I mean, have y'all, I mean, you all have probably been to some really good parades. Um, I have, and when I'm talking about parades, don't be thinking about the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade or a St. Patrick's Day Parade in, in Chicago or New York. I'm talking about local small town parades that I've been to, and they were bad. I remember bundling up Canaan and Jordan to see a, a homecoming parade, and it was, it was pitiful. The cheerleaders were walking, and they were out of step, and they were round in a corner, and the wind blew, and the little paper uh, banner that they had ripped. The band started coming. It was the biggest band in town, and I could swear that the, the horn section wasn't playing what the drummers were. And then all of a sudden, I mean, they, they, they really went out there because they had a parachuter, and he was going to parachute and land right at the right spot where he could just join the parade. And, and it was tracking really good fun. I mean, he was moving and he was getting there. And then that gust of wind blew. We never saw that dude again. I mean, it might have been two or three blocks away. We never saw the parachuter. And just when you thought it wouldn't get any worse, then it was the Shriners. And you know the Shriners. You know, in those little mini cars. And they're driving around. And it's really exciting. And Canaan and Jordan get exciting because they, they're, they're driving around in all these formations. And then it happened. The guy's car conked out. And there he was on the sideline. <laughs> And it was the saddest thing. Because, you know, if one person is out of formation, everybody's out of formation. So they're stalled and they're looking at him and they're looking at him like he did something wrong. And, and then it really was the saddest thing because they pushed that dude to the side and drove off without him. I bring this up because... Our walk with Christ and our journey together can be seen as a spiritual journey. All throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's this reoccurring image of the parade, the processional, and the pilgrimage. All throughout the Old and New Testament, we see these images of parades and processionals and pilgrimages, whether it's Abraham wandering in his nomadic wandering, or the children of Israel exiting out of Egypt, or them moving into um, exile, or they're moving out of exile, marching to Jerusalem, or the, the wilderness wandering, all of it. Jesus moving into his triumphant uh, march into Jerusalem or his march to the cross all throughout the Old and New Testament. There are these reoccurring images of parade, pilgrimage, and processional. Why? Because our walk with Christ as a community can often be seen as a spiritual journey. God is actively moving this world to a place of wholeness and, and unity and reconciliation. We see this in Colossians 1 where he's reconciling all things to himself, things on heaven and things on earth through the blood of Christ Jesus. We see the image in Revelation 7 and Revelation 20 and Revelation 21 where God is reconciling all things, bringing all of us together where there's wholeness with God and wholeness with each other and wholeness with community and, and creation that God has given us. And, and it's moving inextricably toward Towards this thing, and how many times as those things are moving, 
has a good wind of circumstance blown and you just find yourself off course. Or worse, how many times have I or how many times have you seen everything moving towards this greater good, towards unity and reconciliation and peace for all things, and you find yourself like that shriner on the sideline? (laughs) There's a reason why we typically get stalled. Psychologists would call it the ego. Contemplatives, we call it the false self. This is why the Bible warns us so much about idols because the, the, the ego and the false self functions from a place of idols. Phil, you, you showed this to me and I added it to my teaching because it so tracks with the Bible. There are really only three idols. All the other idols can be folded into these three idols. Comfort, significance, power, and control. Comfort, significance, power, and control. You know, a time where, where, where a huge crisis will hit and, and, and some of us, we fall back into those things that numb us or give us the ability to escape from the presence of that circumstance. And so we drink too much or we eat too much or we shop too much or we get involved in pornography or, or infidelity. That's comfort. It numbs us and helps us escape from the circumstance that's comfort and then or or some of us when a terrible circumstance happens all of a sudden we we rely on our pride or our arrogance don't you know who i am i have all the answers here i have decided your pain does not matter or doesn't even exist it's it's me that's significance Or then let circumstance happen. And we fall into this place where we start thinking, it's me. I'm in control. It's my way or the highway. Might makes right. That's power and control. Imagine how many relationships have been ruined by these three idols. Think about how many churches have been derailed by functioning from a place of comfort, significance, power, and control. Imagine a nation being run from a place of comfort, significance, power, and control. We don't have to imagine it. Actually, it's in the Bible, right? Moses is not even that far from, uh, he's, he's been gone for, for three months getting the Ten Commandments. And what are the, the children of Israel doing at the bottom of the mountain? We got a golden uh, calf, right? We built an idol, one that gives us comfort from Moses being gone, one that gives us significance because we got gods now like the Egyptians, and it gives us power and control because they molded a god instead of a god molding them. Comfort, significance, power and control. Oh, but praise be to God. Jesus comes onto the scene. The Holy Spirit drives him into the wilderness. And what temptations does Satan bring to him? Uh, stone, uh, bread to, uh, stone turned into bread. Comfort. Throw yourself off the tower. The angels will pick you up. Everybody will see you. You will be a, a miracle worker. Significance. Bow down to me, Satan says, and I will give you rule over all of the nations power, and control. Hear me, where others failed, where the children of Israel failed, Jesus was victorious. 
Thank you, Tim. I'm going to say that again so some other people can say amen to that. Where other people failed, where the children of Israel failed, Jesus was victorious. You better believe it. Because I would be remiss if I didn't stop and tell somebody the same is true for you today. Where other people fail, Jesus will be victorious in your life. Where the doctors may fail, where friends may leave, where parents may abuse, where lovers may lie, when bosses can forget you, spouses may neglect you. But hear me, where others have failed, Jesus always oh, victorious. See, the ego thinks, positions itself, and expresses itself from a place of comfort, significance, power, and control. Empire thinks from a position and expresses itself from a place of comfort, significance, power, and control. Brokenness thinks and positions and expresses itself from a place of comfort, significance, power, and control. And the spiritual journey seeks to rid us of these idols. How? By contemplative practice. By contemplative practice. Contemplation. It's another compound word. It comes from the Latin contemplari, con, with or within, templari, the temple. So we are living from, we're thinking from, we are expressing ourselves from, we're positioning ourselves from within the temple, which is a representation of the abiding, loving intimacy with God. Don't y'all want that? To live from a place of by abiding, loving intimacy with God. You'll remember in the Old Testament, the, temp, uh, the, the tabernacle and the temple were shaped in three sections with the, the holies of holies being the, 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 the more intimate section covered by a veil because it was the place where God abided. And it was the place of deep, deep intimacy. So we sit in silence and stillness, and in solitude before a loving presence of God. Here we're talking about deep forms of prayer, meditation, centering prayer, breath prayer, and many others, where I tune my heart to the loving presence of God. But there's something, before I go on, let's hear about uh, asking stuff from God. I mean, uh, you know, this, this contemplative move is we move from asking things from God and start asking just to be with God, right? This form of meditation and sitting in stillness and silence is helping us move from a place where we just ask things of God, and we start moving to just asking to be with God. But let's, let's celebrate that the fact that we can ask something from God, right? I mean, I'm bothering God. I got a feeling that God, when, when I start praying, he say, oh, it's you again? I, I know he doesn't do that, but I'm persistent with my prayers. If it, come, if it has something to do with the kingdom of God, if it has something to do with what I need to do, the will of God, if it's me trying to figure out what the deepest part of the will of God is, I, I'm, I'm, I'm praying hard, and I'm praying often, and I'm bothering God. You, you know how Josh teaches us these prayer forms with, the, with, with hands and, like, you know, pray with your open hand to, to, to receive something or pray like this when you're letting something go or are praying something like this so you can surrender to God, I, I had to add another one. It's the banging fist prayer. 
Just like that persistent widow in Luke 18, right? I'm, I'm banging, banging, banging on the walls of heaven in the hopes that I can ask God for what I need for his kingdom. But boy, it's just something about this move and this turn where we stop so much asking things from God and moving just to ask to be with God. In a sense, you're saying, God, I just want to be where you are. I don't want anything from you. You ain't got to talk to me. I don't have to talk to you. I just want to keep company with you, God. I just want to be in your presence. I want to feel your love and your compassion. Oh, if I could just be with God, pulling away from thinking thoughts of empire, away from from being broken in my brokenness, pulling away from comfort, significance, power, and control, sitting in silence and stillness and in solitude, in effect saying, God, dear God, I just want to be with you. We see glimpses of of the contemplative practice throughout the Bible. Um, all the time, whether it's Isaac, uh, Isaac praying, uh, meditating in the field in, in Genesis 24 and 26, or Isaiah being swept up into the presence of God in Isaiah 6, or, or, or where, where Psalm 16 said, May the words of my, my, my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, or, or Jesus' practice of habitually going to and seeking a solitary place to pray in the morning. Or in the, the Sermon on the Mount where he says, just go into your inner space to pray. All throughout the Bible, we get glimpses of this contemplative practice. Long ago, uh, there were these people that wanted to get away from the empire. They wanted to get away from the distractions of the city. They wanted to get away from their brokenness. So they started going into the deserts of Egypt in the third century. But what happened once they got into the desert? They realized they had actually left the city, but the city was in them. They realized they had left the distractions of the city, but the distractions were in them. And so they sought going back to Scripture and finding these contemplative practices of slowing and settling and in solitude so that it could be molded and shaped in the presence of God by just being in a place of deep intimacy with God so that we're better equipped to engage their world. The Apostle Paul says we gain a lot from deep intimacy with God. We are gifted with some things with a knowledge of Christ. And it's interesting to note that in the Bible, sometimes the word knowing or know has very little to do with the acquisition of facts. It has more to do with relationship. You all get this. How many of you all love coffee? Any coffee drinkers? Amen, my my tribe. I, w- I was going to use um, the example of ribs, but Mark uh, Hickman always accused me that every sermon I had ribs in it. Um, so I'll use coffee this time. Have, have, you, have you ever had a barista describe coffee to you? It's, it's magical. I mean, they like, start talking about the richness of the bean or how it needs to be grounded in just a sort of way or the, the, the temperature just has to be right. To, and you find out all of this factual information about coffee. You're like, wow, that sounds really good. But see, that's just the acquisition of facts. But when you hold that mug 
and you smell that aroma and they, boy, that's a good cup of coffee because that's a relational knowing. And all throughout the Bible, God is inviting us, Scripture is inviting us not so much to gain facts about Jesus, but to know Jesus. And I appreciate it. Let's, let's find as many facts out about Jesus as we can. Let's, let's understand Jesus in context. Let's get a historical understanding of Jesus and a philosophical understanding of Jesus and a pedagogical understanding of Jesus. Let's understand Jesus as much as we can and get as many facts as we can. But all oh, this scripture is, is, is begging the question, do, not do you know of Jesus, but do you know him? Do you know of him or do you know him? Do you know him like when when, when you're at your worst and and he loves you deeply? Do you you know him? Do you know him as a warm source when the night is cold? Do you know him? Do you know Jesus as a distant concept or as one that sticks closer to you like a friend? I need to ask you, do you know him? Because when we know him, we receive a couple of things. What, what Paul says in, in, in the scripture, we get the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. I love that. We receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Wisdom, understanding how God has designed the world to work. And, and, and revelation, understanding how God, his mystery is to unfold. We're given that. And when we are given that, our hearts are open. And our heart, we are enlightened. And we, we also see that we have a hope that's unshakable, an inheritance that is reliable, and a power that leads you to believe that everything dying ain't necessarily dead. Whether it's a dying dream, a dying relationship, a dying church, a, a dying national soul, don't, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's dead. But we receive so much more. When we move to these places of stillness and silence and meditation and contemplative practice, we receive so much. We, we stop functioning from a place of stress. We, we, we stopped functioning from a place of stress. And, and all of a sudden, we, we, we are more mindful. We can be fully present with people when we do these things. We have sharper thinking and focus. And one of the great things is we normalize contradiction in our lives. We begin engaging others from a place of love. And yes, there'll be distraction. At the very moment, I don't know how many of you all have, have started the process of meditating or sitting in stillness and silence, but once you do, you realize, man, you just start getting distracted immediately, Right? God, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be in your loving presence. And all of a sudden, you start thinking about the laundry list, the things you got to do. Past thoughts start rolling in. And it's okay. Matter of fact, it's good. Because once you realize that you're distracted, you notice the distraction, and you just move yourself focusing back into the loving presence of God. I had a young woman come up to me. I was teaching meditation um, at uh, one of our satellite campuses. And she said, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. I cannot meditate because anytime I sit and settle in meditation for 20 minutes, I get distracted a thousand times and I got to refocus a thousand times. And I was like, oh, that's great. That's wonderful. And she, she had this look of perplexing confusion and hatred towards me when I said that. Because what I said to her was, if you're distracted a thousand times, 
and you come back to the loving presence of God a thousand times, it's as if every time you leave, you're returning to the open arms of Jesus saying, come. A thousand times? Come. I know you left me. Come. I, 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 know, I know you're distracted, but just, just come on back to my loving arms. A thousand times. That ain't a bad deal. It's not a bad deal at all. But how do I know? How do I know the contemplative stream can actually work? How do you know if meditation and centering prayer and breast prayer and the like can prove, uh, provide an opening to the deepest intimacy with God and engagement to the world? Well, if my, my, my 10-year journey of meditation can't uh, convince you, uh, maybe I turn you to the fact that Fortune 5000 companies and, and churches alike are paying people like me exorbitant amount of money to come and talk about meditation these days. And if that doesn't work, I would encourage you to just wade in with a good faith effort in, 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 in stillness and meditation and really try it. You can't just immediately quit. You got to dig deep into it. But if that can't convince you, then can I direct you to the cross? Because there was a reason Jesus let men unfairly arrest him. There is a reason Jesus let them unjustly beat him while incarcerated. There is a reason he let them whip him and spit upon him and place a crown of thorns on him, nail his hands and nail his feet to the cross. There's a reason they raised up Jesus that he experienced so much torture. There's a reason that he bore a crown and that they, he allowed them to stab him in his side where blood and water, sacred blood and water poured. There is a reason why Jesus allowed all of that to happen because at the very moment that Jesus breathed his last breath and he said, it is finished, the veil in the temple ripped from top to bottom. Not bottom to top, because if it was bottom to top, some man might have done it. But if it was top to bottom, you know God had something to do with it. And God rips this veil, giving us an opening to deep, deep intimacy for humanity, for me, and for you. You know, as I was putting this message together for you, this church I love, I thought about it. I thought about all of you who have experienced far too much loss in too short of an amount of time. I've been thinking about all of you who I love that are wrestling with purpose and asking yourself, do I actually belong? And do I actually belong here I've been thinking about all of you who bear far too much responsibility at far too young of an age for far too long in your life. All of you have, who, who've seen too much and messed up too much and fallen down and gotten back up and fallen back down and gotten back up. I've been thinking about all of you all and praying over you for far too long. And I've been thinking about those people that really want to hold on to a moral compass when it seems like the world has completely gone away and you want to hold on to your morality but still love them but are finding it hard to do so. I've been thinking and praying for all of you all. And if I, anything that I could do and leave you with is this. Take God up on his offer of deep intimacy and love. Take him up on this desire to be with you. Take God upon this, uh, up on this spiritual journey. Take God up on this call of stillness and silence and slowing. Take God up on this command to be still and know that I am God. Be still and know 
still and know, be still. We are not human doings. We're human beings. Can God invite you to that place of intimacy? The shepherds, if you all could come forward and, and prayer partners, can, uh, wherever you all are going to be stationed, because uh, this, this, this is, a, this is a, an invitation to deep intimacy. How do we find deep intimacy with God? We find deep intimacy with each other as we walk together with God. You know, baptism is actually a move towards deeper intimacy. We are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We, 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 we are baptized into deep relationship with God and with the church. This is the time for that. If there's something that we need to celebrate together, if, there, if somebody is, is just tired of being driven from comf- by comfort, significance, power, and control, now is the time to do something about that. As we stand and sing and we ask you to go to, for, for deep prayer and intimacy.